Today on Ag News Daily. The quickest way to do it is just to simplify it. I mean, it's to pretend, it's, it's just to collect less data. You know, just don't pretend those other layers of data don't matter. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast for a Tech Tuesday episode with my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, what do you know today? Oh, Delaney, I know so many things. My brain is just bursting at the seams. Mm. I'm so excited to get it out into the microphone and get it out into the, the ear holes of our fantastic listeners to the Ag News the Daily The ear Podcast. holes, that's nice. Yeah, that's the scientific phrase for it. Okay, great. You been working yep. on any good projects today? I have been touching up paint in my dining room, so getting mm-hmm. that done, which is very nice. It's been uh, uh, six years in the making, so it's good to finally <laughs> get it get it close to get done. And uh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that's been my projects. big project. All right, smelling in those paint fumes, huh? Breathing them in. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I am high as a kite. <laughs> Lovely. No, it's it is nice with the weather being as beautiful as it is today. I've yeah. got the windows open and. You know, it is it is gorgeous outside still, even though that uh, blizzard slash thunderstorm maker is approaching from the west. Yeah, actually talking about that, it's expected to be another bomb cyclone weather system, which is what that original was, original one was there in Nebraska about four weeks ago. It's expected to hit this week and stretch from Wyoming to Wisconsin with the hardest hit areas to stretch across north-central Nebraska through South Dakota and into southern Minnesota. So I feel bad for those folks in Nebraska. They're going to get hit again. Absolutely. And, you know, I think something like 75% of the precip from this storm is expected to fall in the Missouri River Valley. Mm-hmm. And they can't it, handle it. They can't. Right, exactly. It's going to be another disaster in the making. The hope from what I've been hearing, and we really ought to get our friend Ed Valley back on mm. to, to get his thoughts as this thing develops and we see what ends up taking place. Um, how slow is the melting going to be? Because I saw today they're, mm-hmm. they're talking 18 plus inches yeah. of snowfall up there in that uh, South Dakota area. Well, North central Nebraska. Not only that, but I can't remember where I was looking. It might have been on the Weather Channel's website or something, but just that these bomb cyclones um, might be happening like periodically and pretty frequently. Like if the, mm. if the weather pattern itself is changing, I'm not sure. I'm not a meteorologist, obviously. But yeah, Ed would be a good guy to have back on and talk about that with us. Absolutely. So we'll just have to keep an eye on it. We'll keep all of our friends there in the uh, the Great Plains in our thoughts here as the mm-hmm. weather system cranks up on them over the next couple of days. Yeah, and um, apparently our good friend Bill Northey, who is of course an undersecretary now in the USDA, told some members in Capitol Hill on Monday that the flooding last month blindsided a lot of Iowa and Nebraska farmers. And he still is urging Congress to figure out a way to compensate those producers that lost grain that was in storage. He said right now the cleanest thing he thinks is for Congress to just add provisions to the current disaster aid bill that's uh, currently stalled in the Senate. Oh, okay. And that's so that's possible. I I guess so. All right. Well, that would probably be the easiest, but I guess nothing is easy in this current no, political climate. So no. who knows? Right. Oh, that's frustrating. You know, I've got something else that's a a little frustrating, kind of typical of the environment we've been in here, politically speaking, Mm -hmm. for the past couple of years. Um, Yesterday, 
I talked a little bit about how there was good news coming out of the European Union. The U.S. and the EU had sort of temporarily buried the hatchet. We were all going to pull together and put pressure on China to crack down on their uh, intellectual property theft and all the other things they do. And uh, it, was a, it was a nice, uplifting story. I was pretty excited about seeing it yesterday. Today, I've got a story. This morning, President Donald Trump threatened to impose $11 billion worth of tariffs mm. on European Union products, heightening tensions over a long-running transatlantic aircraft subsidy dispute. So this is another front in the trade war is now being created literally a day after, you know, all of the so-called important people got up and said, oh, we're we're coming together. We're going to put pressure on China. Now it's kind of all been thrown into the into the wind. Hmm. Well, I've got another piece then that might um, affect our trade. We got an article sent to us this morning by Gary Rasmussen, who's a great supporter of the Ag News Daily podcast. But this w- this has been in, in top headlines that I've seen this morning. Um, that's when we look to our Canadian trading partners. Of course, we've got USMCA being ratified by Congress and Mexico and Canada's governments. But Canada announced that a new list of retaliatory tariffs on more U.S. goods, including agricultural products, could go on as early as next week, basically to be even keel with the amount of tariffs that we have on them, and largely because they want those steel and aluminum tariffs taken off. They said if those tariffs don't get taken off their steel and aluminum products, then they're going to reconfigure retaliatory tariffs to keep roughly $15 billion worth in products from the U.S. under either a 25 or a 10% tariff. Could include things like wine, apples, of course, all of the products we already have tariffs on, ethanol, pork. And he said once a list of those goes out, there's going to be a 45-day period of consultation to see which products have the biggest impact on the U.S. and the least impact on Canadians and their sector. So asking President Trump to take off those those tariffs on steel and aluminum. And he said the gentleman that's being quoted in this particular article is Canada's ambassador to the U.S., David McNaughton. He said, we have this deal in place with them. We agree that it's a good deal. It's balanced in his opinion. But he said that President Trump has a new trade deal, which he indicated was the best agreement ever. And he said, this should resolve all of the issues and we should be starting over here. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with the, and I don't like to agree with foreigners, Delaney. You know this. I'm hey, pro-America we, all the way. We gotta be, but I, we gotta be a little unbiased I agree unbiased with the Canadian here. guy. We got some Canadian listeners. Right, they're foreigners. But I'm agreeing with them this time. Okay. I, I mean, I think, I think he's right. It, we're coming together. We're signing this whole new deal. We've yeah. ripped up or, you know, presumably right. will be ripping up NAFTA. Let's, let's cut him a break. Let's not throw another segment of agriculture, especially mm-hmm. in my opinion, under the bus on this deal. Yeah. He said it's not to try and escalate anything. It's just to maintain the dollar for dollar response to President Trump's tariffs. It's all escalation. You know, it's. It, they but, say that, and I'm sure they mean it. They're not going above and beyond the dollar for dollar amount, right? But, but if it's you, still a threat. If you think back, President Trump did the same thing when he put these tariffs on in the first place to try and right. force Canada and Mexico's hand to come to the negotiating table and get something wrapped up. Absolutely, that was an escalation. So this is another escalation. Yeah. That's why these trade wars get out of control. Yes. 
Oh boy. Well, lots of, lots of interesting news today. Mm-hmm. Lots of interesting news. Uh, what else you got? Well, this is more of a commentary on Americans' understanding of science. Okay. We talk about it quite a bit in relation to genetically modified organisms. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of misguided science or quote unquote science. We've seen it now with the glyphosate lawsuits. Mm-hmm. We've seen it with, uh, Dr. Van Enenem's, uh, genetically modified beef, all sorts of things that the public doesn't understand. Another thing they do not understand, Delaney, or a growing segment of the population does not understand is how vaccines work. Mm-hmm. and how we were able to eliminate measles as a threat. Because so many people are not vaccinating their children in New York, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio declared a public health emergency in parts of Brooklyn in response to the measles outbreak, basically requiring unvaccinated people living in the areas to get the vaccine or be fined. That's where we've come to because people don't understand science. They're now What does this have to, to do with fun- agriculture? It's just the fact people are so stupid. We're not fighting this battle alone. Public health people are fighting this. I don't know what we can do about it, but, man, it's discouraging. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting Yeah, do you see the parallels? I I guess so. No. I'm not sure I care at this point. I don't have children, so. Well, yeah, but, you know, (laughs) other people do. Well, right. Also, it's happening in New York, so I don't know. Right. And people in New York vote. People in New York get elected to regulatory positions in the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These people matter, believe it or not. I know. They do, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, or fortunately. We don't want, you know. Right. No. Yeah. Just just so these people have a little different perspective is all. Right. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, we did finally see the assessment come out yesterday for Roundup Ready and glyphosate products since we're talking about sciencey things. Are you ready for this long-awaited report, what it came to? Can I take a guess? I yeah. haven't read it. You know, okay. I, I don't like to do research before the show, so of course <laughs> I haven't seen it. Okay, what? What's your guess? I'm I'm going to guess that it said glyphosate is perfectly safe. Okay, well, kind of. After the long-awaited report, it came to an ambiguous conclusion. What? Okay, now this is big news. Yes. Their report said it might be carcinogenic. Then again, it might not be. Good. Good work there, government. (laughs) So much of the toxicological profile released by the CDC and the Prevention's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry um, consisted of different studies conducted on all aspects of glyphosate exposure, including eating it, applying it to foods, as well as recommendations for further research. But they said glyphosate's role to causing cancer, if any, most studies found no association between exposure to glyphosate-based products and risk of cancer. That's exactly what the EPA concluded already, that it doesn't cause cancer. However, they did say a possible association between exposure to glyphosate and the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma could not be ruled out based on conflicting results. So that's really been kind of the bread and butter of all of these cases going on right now in California. So I think it's a little fishy that they ruled that out when you see all these lawsuits going on saying, hey, non, I got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from exposure to Roundup Ready. 
well, and you know, that's what lawyers do. They find the weak spot and that's the part they go after. And, uh, you know, they must have made a compelling case, I guess. And now they've got this research from the right. EPA to back them up. It's not from the EPA. It's from the CDC. CDC. Right. Yeah. Thank yep. you. But I don't yeah. know. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't sound like we're going to see an end of those lawsuits anytime soon. No, that's basically the bread and butter of that story. Well, I've got one piece of good news here before we uh, cut into the markets or okay. get to your last piece of news, Delaney. And that is a comment from Secretary Sonny Perdue earlier today. He was talking about the talks going on between the U.S. and China, and he said one of the things being discussed was reducing China's tariff on U.S. ethanol and that the discussions have been positive. Here was his quote. He said, quote, there have been conversations with China on reducing that tariff on ethanol, which would obviously be good for a domestic corn industry. While things look positive, it's never over till it's over with the Chinese, end quote. But he really was trying to emphasize the fact that things are going in the right direction. So well, that's good. kind of a, the piece of good news that I've got today is perhaps we'll be able to bring down that tariff on ethanol and we can start shipping them a value-added product and mm-hmm. putting a couple more pennies in our pockets here on, in this country. Okay. Well, I've got two pieces of news here before we head into the markets, and I'm going to save the WASI report numbers to lead into our markets for today. But just a quick update here on Apple. African swine fever. It was reported about a month ago, um, first reported about a month ago in Vietnam, and it's already spread to swine in nearly half of the country, according to USDA's latest analysis. And this disease has gained the attention of top government officials in Vietnam, but the spread of the disease is likely going to hit Asia hard and probably parts of Europe now. But Their prime ministers called for drastic measures from the whole political system to fight African swine fever nationwide. Okay. Yeah, but the USDA's analysis is warning it might be too late to stop the the progression in Vietnam. It might be so. Oh, wow. Like their hogger just might be gone. I guess so. Hmm. Well, you know, that's a market. We've been shipping more meat to lately. I, right. you know, gosh, you hate to celebrate other people's demise, but that could be good news for U.S. pork producers. It could be, absolutely. But we did not have such good news. When we look at today's WASD report, it was ruled out ultimately bearish by analysts. Going through just some quick stats here from it, U.S. ending stocks for corn, we were at uh, 2.35 billion bushels. The average trade guess was 2.13 so a little bit higher than the average guess there, but up significantly since March's uh, WASD report when we were at 1,835,000,000 corn stocks. Soybeans, a little a little more positive than uh, the trade was expecting. The trade was expecting to see 913 million bushels, but we only came in at 895 million. So it's still a really large carryout number, but a little bit better than what the trade was expecting. Wheat sat about 1.87 million bushels, and that was also up from March's report. Uh, World-ending stocks, corn, soybeans, and wheat, all large numbers. I'm just going to leave it at that. The other thing I think to note here from today's WASDE report was world production. They specifically pulled out here some numbers from Argentina and Brazil. When you look at soybean production... We saw Brazil's production number for April raised to 117 million metric tons, so up half a million metric tons there. 
Argentina's soybean production remained the same from their March estimate. Uh, corn in Argentina was raised a million metric tons, and Brazil's corn crop was raised one and a half million metric tons. So overall, a pretty bearish report for most of the grains. Yeah, but all things considered, it didn't have a huge effect on the market today. Uh, pulled us down from yeah. from our highs, but we'll get into that right now with the help of our friends from the Zaner Group. They bring us our markets every single day, folks. You can get in touch with them and get help managing through these potentially risky reports by giving them a call at 312-277-0050 or visiting them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Well, old crop corn was unchanged on the day with the May contract unchanged at 360 even. December new crop was actually up a quarter penny at 389 and a quarter. Looking at soybeans, the May contract was unchanged on the day, finished at night, excuse me, 898 and three quarters. New crop November down half a penny at 931 and three quarters. We took it on the chin, however, with the May contract down five and three quarters at 459 and a half. The July down four and three quarters to close at 464 even. Looking over at the world of livestock, it's Pretty red on the screen today, with one exception. April live cattle were up 10 cents at 125.90. The June contract was down 22.5 at 120.35. In feeder cattle, it's all red, with the April contract down 57.5 cents at 146.15. The May down 40 to close at 150.17 and a half. And hogs were the big loser on the day. The April contract was down 7.5 cents at 78.52.50, but the May was Limit down $3 daily trading limit at $86.45. We also saw that carried forward into the June contract as well. So they will see expanded trading limits tomorrow. Looking over into the dairy sector, the April contract was up, excuse me, April class three milk contract was up seven cents at 1593 with the May up 11 at 1583. Well, let's go ahead and turn it over to our hashtag Tech Tuesday discussion. We'll be having an exchange with Dan Freeberg, the head of Premier Crop Systems, talking about exactly what it is they do and what he's excited for into the future. Now, tell us a little bit about the Dan story. What's your history? Just an Iowa farm kid, went to Iowa State, um, wholesale fertilizer for a few years right out of college and then retail. So, you know, selling to growers, selling crop inputs to growers. And then after that, ran the Trade Association, so what's now the Agribusiness Association of Iowa. So spent eight years in association management, with, which is really a lot of um, lobbying and reg- yeah. regulatory, you know, representing agriculture to the public and to uh, legislators and Congress people. So but where'd you grow up? Southeast Iowa, Fairfield. Mm. Okay. All right. Yeah, very cool. PCS, what was the jump? What made you decide that there was a, a, a space for you here in, in this sector? Le- left the trade association to start um, and started doing business consulting. And a lot of the business consulting was with um, people who used to, who were members of the association. And a lot of the consulting was around um, the idea that agribusiness needed to start charging for agronomic advice. So... The idea was that growers are getting more sophisticated. In order for you to keep up with the very best growers, you needed to deliver a higher level of agronomic expertise. And in order to do that, um, you needed to you needed to actually charge for the advice. And and at the time, a lot of those um, companies were 
starting to get yield files. So Ag Leader was, you know, ramping up their yield monitors and other companies were right there too. So all of a sudden they were getting a geo-reference yield file, which allowed, you know, the vision was that all of a sudden we're able to measure yield or productivity within the field. Um, they were also starting to soil sample using GPS and variable rate nutrient equipment was hitting the market. So it was obvious to a, to a group that there was, in the same time we were talking about charging for services, that there were all of a sudden all these data sources. So, um, But nobody knew what to do with the data. And that's really how Premier Crop got started was just this idea of we're, we knew we could see the vision that we're, we're going to have geo-reference data, going to be able to measure productivity, going to be able to measure whether what we did agronomically uh, mattered, whether we're doing the right thing. But we needed a we needed a way to do that, and that's really how Premier Crop got started. Just a, a group of people who had a vision for using data to farm better. When you look at when you started, that was kind of maybe at the earlier end of when people were starting to use data um, in their operations or starting to charge for it, how did you get over that initial shock or hump of producers being like, I don't want to pay for this or I don't know if this is worth it? How did you get through that phase? It was really ugly. So, you know, this is 20 years ago, so nobody else was doing it. I mean, very few people were doing it. So it was really brand new. It was unproven. There was... Um, a lot of non-believers. There was, a, you know, it was just hurdle after hurdle. So, the early years in any business like that are just really ugly, and it, it's just a lot of uh, hard work to prove out the value. And um, so, it's kind of one grower at a time, you know, one partner at a time to, to show the value. And and how did you decide what types of data you should be utilizing for producers? We, we always had this vision that, that um, agronomy is really complex, that crop production is really complex, and it's very integrated. So, so from the very start, we went out, we, we set out to build a really deep database. And when I say deep, I just mean hundreds of layers of data. So, um, we wanted to be able to, you know, it's not, if you think about a university, a university setting related to crop production, you know, you have uh, people who are um, in, Etymologists and great with insects and weed scientists and um, you have nutri you know soil soil scientists who understand soils and you have people who are great with fertility but but in the real world all those all those all those different decisions and sciences come together at the farm gate and you know it's what, what limits yield is not one versus the other it's the combination of any one of those things so. So we just, understanding that, we just set out to build a really deep data set. So it includes soil test values, it includes applied nutrients, um, it includes hybrid variety, but it goes way beyond that. So it includes weather, it includes planting date, it includes uh, planting rates, it, um, tillage, just just anything anything that we think can impact yields um, and profitability we try to collect. Now, one of the huge concerns I hear when we're talking about data is garbage in, garbage out. How are you guys collecting data and ground-truthing it to ensure that you've got the right numbers, the right information? It's a really, it, you hear that a lot. I mean, and, and it's very true. There's just a lot of bad data. 
Um, but in, but I always defend growers. I always defend growers that if I've never used, if I've never used my yield file to make a decision, pretty quick I, I quit caring about how accurate it is. But if once I once I transition to where I'm actually paying to be part of a system to to use my data to make decisions, then we find that growers quickly transition to caring a whole bunch about getting it right. So so then they almost drive you crazy because if if the scale ticket on the you know the on the scale ticket says the field average two twenty three, they expect our reports to say two twenty three for that field. So so it's just that it's just a it's a partnership. It's a partnership that requires the grower to care. Um, but our experience has been once growers are actually using data to make decisions, then they focus a lot on helping us get it right. So there's a but there's a lot of correction. You know, I mean, there's a lot of correction. So inevitably, inevitably, you know, once the growers see the data they've collected, they're quick to say, oh, I forgot. I forgot I changed hybrids or I changed varieties or I forgot this part of the field got manure or, you know, so they, there's a lot of those gotchas that, so you, you know, so the system has to be fluid enough to make corrections. Um, so there's a lot of just fixing data as it as you go. But growers get better. Every year they're in the system. Uh, they get better, but what kind of tugs against that is a lot of them as they grow their operation, they're they're bringing new people into their farming operation, so they have a training curve, you know. So to get good data, it um, it requires a lot of a lot of work on everybody's part. Have you seen anything that has been kind of a silver bullet for growers? There isn't a silver bullet. In fact, when people ask me the silver bullet question, I always say, okay, you don't understand what we're talking about. <laughs> so the, 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 the point is the silver bullet changes within every part of every field and it can change from year to year. So when I talk about silver bullets, I'm talking about what it, for me and for I think growers, what they want to know is what's profit limiting. What, what can I do different? That's the ultimate silver bullet. You know, so it's, it's just what is profit limiting in each part of my field and what can I do to change that? So, so silver bullet is changing constantly and it's, it's not one size fits all. Um, you know, which is, which kind of, you know, sometimes it's, um, yeah, sometimes I wish there were silver bullets because it would be, um, it would be easier to sell it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'd be easier to sell what we're doing, uh, to growers if we could just say, Hey, we, we know the silver bullets and, Here's how here's how to use them. So. You said something interesting there too that I want to expand on just a little bit. You said there's not a one size fits all model, but maybe when you started 20 years ago, was that how people were going about collecting data and using this type of system? Was a one size fits all model for growers? Not well. The, there's so there, there's a <laughs> if if you want to try to reach a lot of acres the the and and do this the the quickest way to do it is just to simplify it. I mean, it's to pretend, it's, it's just to collect less data. You know, just don't pretend those other layers of data don't matter. You know, so it's, so if, if, you know, it's, it, like if I really wanted to make it simple, I'd pretend that it's all just genetics. It's, it's yield by hybrid and variety by soils. And now all of a sudden I've taken 400 layers that we collect and I've reduced it down to three or four. And that makes it easy. But our, 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 position would be that that's that's not real that the in the real world it's it's this interaction of all these different layers that really makes a difference one of the questions i've got for you you talk about 400 different layers of data the system the systems you have to interpret this data 
walk us through, if you could, how that system actually works. How do you use all of these data sets to compile a, a blueprint for a field? It's a, it's really complex. I mean, there's a lot to it. So um, I, I always start from a data analysis perspective and I always start, you know, the analysis we do starts subfield, you know, so it's, it's parts of each field, you know, whether it's a management zone within a field, you know, so we talk a lot about, um, dividing the field into productivity zones or management zones. It's, it's, it's kind of a message that resonates really well with growers. So we talk a lot about the best part of the field. We, we label them sometimes A zones. So the A zone is the consistently high yielding part of the field. Uh, growers love to talk about their A zones because that's where the, you know, they just, they, they're sitting in the combine and they just, they see the, that yield flashing on the combine and it's just off the chart. You know, sometimes they're, they're in parts of the field. They've all seen 80, 90 bushel beans in parts of their field. They've all seen 270 bushel corn in parts of their field. So, so they love talking about those parts of the field where everything is just clicking and some, somehow for some reason, it's just really exceptional. B zones are probably field average, you know, kind of, and then C zones or D zones are where something else is yield limiting. So a lot of attention on those two, trying to, trying to identify what it is. Um, but, but the message, a lot of times our message is that in order to raise your overall field average or your farm average, um, you know, if you just think about if if you've been a grower that's averaged 220 bushel corn for a couple of years, and you want to get to 250, how high do your A zones have to be? You know, so your A zones are you know to carry the rest of the to carry the C zones or the the less productive areas. So, so from an analysis standpoint, a lot of the analysis starts subfield. You know, we're digging into each part of the field and trying to understand what it is that's making a difference in the part of the field. The reason I start subfield is because that's where, you know, when it when it comes around to next year and in, in implementing a plan, it, you have to change, you know, you, the, you have to drive change within the field to really have, to drive profit. So, so subfield analysis um, and then field level. So we back out and just look at the overall field and then grower level. So we're able to aggregate and look across their entire operation meaning meaning they can compare the high yield areas from every field and group them together and understand what it what it is that's what's going on you know it's like i've got 50 fields and in every field there's just there's some places that are just exceptional and we're able to aggregate those and identify and talk about what it is that it makes those so exceptional uh, so we're able to do an analytics at a grower level, and then it just keeps building. So it re- builds into regional groups, and a regional group could be multiple counties, um, and then it just continues to build into you know big data sets of hundreds of thousands of acres in a local area. As you look ahead, is there going to be the opportunity for in-field soil sampling for checking what the activity is underground throughout the growing season to manage it more effectively or is that still just cost prohibitive no we have we have some partners who are doing exactly that in in particular on nitrogen so so nitrogen being a mobile nutrient is probably the one that will get the most attention so we have partners who are um, doing that in a big way in a big scale so they'll you know, they'll put a base rate of nitrogen down, they'll build their nitrogen prescriptions, and then they'll 
before that post before the poster merge nitrogen application gets made they'll do a night they'll do a spatial nitrate sample within the field so you know intense nitrate sample and and factor that into the recommendation so really effect i mean cost effective for growers but also uh exciting exciting in that they are able to produce more bushels with less nitrogen you know so their pounds of pounds of n per bushel are just off the chart exciting you know it's like 0.6 pounds of n per bushel produced so just at really high yield so just really um using all the technology to 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 drive it so you know so not just you know obviously great economics for the grower but also positive for um trying to help solve you know water quality issues yeah, you know, I, I would say I'm, I'm hearing the cost per bushel conversation is coming up more and more, particularly at lender meetings. How long have you guys been focused on the cost per bushel aspect as opposed to cost per acre? <laughs> Since we started in 99. That's... Wow. And have you noticed more and more growers kind of coming to sit at the table with that concept in mind? Or are most folks still thinking cost per acre more the big picture? Oh, most people are, most people don't have, most people don't, they don't know how to get to, you know, break even cost per bushel in each part of each of their fields. So, so it's a, you know, they, when we talk to them about it, it's a lot of times they've never, you know, they didn't even know it was possible. So, hmm. so, so I don't, so I don't, so I think they, I think they get it. I think they get, uh, once they, once they're exposed to it, they understand why. Makes sense. Yep. Well, the reason, you know, the reason we started there was in in '99 we were it was horrible commodity prices, so our our whole our whole focus was, um, in order for growers to know when to pull the trigger on price, they need to know their break even cost per bushel. It's like you know, so it was it was kind of like how can we serve up this fundamental piece of business information that is so important to them just just to help drive marketing plans. You know, it's just. There were so there were so few opportunities, you know, at the time there were so few opportunities to pull the trigger at a profit level. So it was just knowing your break-even cost was everything. So it's um, and now we're back there. You know, we're back there where just knowing your break-even cost is really key. Dan Freeberg, head of Premier Crop Systems, thanks for taking the time to walk us through everything you guys are doing and what you think going ahead in the industry. Well, awesome. That is good stuff there from Dan. And I'm excited we are working with Dan and the folks at Premier Crop Systems to launch a little mini podcast series for them. Yes, it is going to be very, very cool stuff. We're, we're putting some things together, tying together the everything economic is agronomic, or, or rather vice versa, everything agronomic is economic concept they have at PCS, tying that into some of the broader themes we're seeing happening in the world of agriculture today. And so listeners, we'll let you know when that comes out. Absolutely. And you'll be able to find it, of course, on our website, globalagnetwork.com, where you can find all of the great podcasts that we have on there. We're launching some good content. I want to promote especially the Agnes Answers podcast. It's a newer one there on the site. They just have dropped their third episode. And I believe that Agnes is looking for folks to send in their questions related to agriculture. They could be personal questions or um you know, marketing questions, what are, whatever questions you have, I believe the email to send them to is agnesanswers at gmail.com. 
That's right, folks. Check that out. And as part of the Global Ag Network, along with a lot of other great ag-focused podcasts, be sure you check them all out. Leave reviews, you know. Do what you can. Share them on Facebook. We we really appreciate it, and I'm sure the creators do as well. Delaney, if they want to share stuff with us on Twitter or Facebook, where should they mm-hmm. go? Absolutely, Mike. They can go to at Ag News Daily on Twitter or on Facebook for our handles, or you can also follow Global Ag Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mike, with that, should we let the folks go? Let's let them go. 